Thank you, Sarah. Yes, please keep um, Genesis 17. So flick back to there. Um, we're going to have a look at that together. We're going to look at a couple of chapters before it first. But I'll begin by asking you, first of all, I'll begin by saying, so good to see you. Um, it is really wonderful to see all your faces. I, and I know some of you are watching line. Um, I'm excited that you're able to join us again tonight as well. Um, and, you know, bring on December as well, where we can actually sing together, hey? But I want to ask you, what makes you different from the people who are around you? I mean, of, of course, there's going to be heaps of things that people share in common, but what marks you out, right? What makes you different? Now, it could be any number of things, couldn't it? It could be abilities or talents that you either have or the fact that you don't have them. Uh, it could be your personality type, your wealth or possessions, maybe your place in the social pecking order, how smart you might be, physical characteristics, you might be six foot one million, you might be not. But a key question for the Christian is how should your faith mark you out from the people around you? What sorts of things should be characteristic of us because we follow Jesus. Of course, people often have a tendency to brag about the things that stand out about them. They often see them as a, as a source of, of pride. And sometimes people brag about really weird things. Maybe you're one of these kind of people. Scars, for instance. Have you have ever witnessed a conversation where people are doing a, a you know, a... a scar brag kind of thing. Here's a scar I got from when I fell off the monkey bars as a kid. Here's, here's the one I got in Pamplona with the running of the bulls. This is where the horn went in. This is where it went out. You know, here's, here's one when I was trying to show a friend how sharp my knife was, and um, which I actually did once, and I could show you that scar later on. But we've got these weird ways of doing these things. Well, can I say that the Jewish people of New Testament times were proud of something that marked them out that was a little bit more like that? A very strange thing to be proud about, really. Circumcision. Now, if you don't know what circumcision is, come up and speak to me afterwards and I'll tell you. But let me tell you, it's a weird thing to be proud about. I'm circumcised, everybody. Okay. Thanks for telling us that. Good on you. Put that on your Instagram post or something like that. Yo, got circumcised today. Fantastic. Except, I just want to say that what we're going to see in today's passage is that when you realise exactly what circumcision meant, it's actually not that weird at all. In fact, it is no surprise that the Jews considered it very, very special something that set them apart from everybody else and every other nation on earth because that is actually what circumcision was meant to do. Now, have a look at Genesis in front of you. We're going to have a look at that. We're going to have a look at a couple of chapters beforehand first. Let me give you a bit of quick background. In Genesis 12, remember how God calls this nobody from out in Mesopotamia, a guy called Abram, a guy who's got, done nothing out of the ordinary and he says, Leave all of your land behind, leave your parents, leave your home and travel to the land of Canaan. And he promises to give that land to Abram and his descendants. Go there and I will give it to you. He says, I'll make, I'll make those great promises, I'll make you into a great nation, I'll bless you. And eventually all peoples on earth, God promises, are going to be blessed 
through this one guy, Abram. Now that's pretty special. But then in chapter 15, which is what we looked at last week, the Lord makes the same promise again, but this time it's a little bit different. The problem is time's passed since the first promise. And Abram is still childless and he's just getting older. Abram has no heir and you'll remember that that was bothering him. But God promises, he said, look, you, you will indeed have a child from your own body. And then remember that bit where he takes him out and he shows him the stars and he says, so shall your offspring be. There, if you could count them all, then somebody could count all your offspring. And then God reaffirms his promise that the land of Canaan is going to be given to his descendants. Well, more time passes and you get to chapter 16. Abram is now 86 and he takes matters into his own hands on the child front. Well, sort of. Sarai, Abram's wife, who was old and unable to have children, she takes her um, maidservant Hagar and she puts her into Abram's hands and says, well, try for a child with her then. Well, Abram takes up Sarai's offer and Hagar conceives and she gives birth to a son called Ishmael. That's in chapter 16. So what have we got? At last, Abram's got his son. One genuinely from his own flesh that can be his heir. Except God has got other plans. Well, in between chapter, the end of chapter 16 and the beginning of chapter 17, you have 13 years. We get to chapter 17, verse 1, it's 13 years later, and for a third time, God confirms his covenant or promise with Abram. So let's begin there in chapter 17, verses 1 and 2. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to him and said, I am God Almighty. Walk before me faithfully and be blameless. Then I will make my covenant between me and you and will greatly increase your numbers. Now these verses signal what's going to follow. That God is going to confirm his covenant. God is going to greatly increase Abram's descendants and Abram is being commanded to walk before God and be blameless. Now each of these things are going to pan out a little bit in the verses that follow. Now, what, let me tell you what a covenant is, first of all. A covenant is a promise, but not just a promise, right? It's a promise, but it's quite a formal one. It's more like the promise of a contract, a binding commitment. I'll do this, and you do that, and if either of us breaks the covenant, this is going to happen. That's the general shape of covenant. It's a contract between two parties. Sometimes it's between two people, sometimes it's between nations and you get lots of them in the ancient world. But look how God introduces the scene of this covenant. First of all, he says, I am God Almighty. Don't mistake who is making this covenant with you. It's not between equals, not between a guy and his mate, but between the ruler of all things and a guy called Abram. That's the order of the relationship. God and him, not this. And Abram, for his part, is to walk before me and be blameless. He is to live his life as the Lord's man and do so faithfully. Now, I want to say here that the then, if you're looking at verse 2, is slightly misleading, okay? It's basically, it's, you could 
translate that little bit with five or six different words um, and the older version of the NIV didn't translate it with then. Let me tell you why I think then is a bit unhelpful because it implies if you're reading it, someone might think that it's saying that God is only going to establish his covenant if Abram has already fulfilled the condition of walking before him. But as you can see in the verses that immediately follow, God goes ahead and makes his covenant with him. He doesn't rely on him walking before him and being blameless before he does it. So verse 1 states the relationship, verse 2 is what God will do because of that relationship. Well, Abram recognises straight away who's addressing him and his status and look what he does in verse 3. He falls flat on his face in awe and humility. Imagine God turned up right in front of you and said, let's make a bargain. I reckon you'd do the same. So let's have a look at the terms of this contract, the fine print. All right, we begin with, we get God's side of the covenant. That's what you read in verses 4 to 8. He outlines that and he says, this is what I'll do for you. But he doesn't just say the same thing that he said before, he promises something bigger and better this time. See, in chapter 12, Abram was told he'd be a great nation. Now he's told he'll be more than that. As for me, verse 4, this is my covenant with you. You will be the father of many nations. So no longer will you be called Abram, your name will be Abraham. For I have made you a father of many nations. I will make you very fruitful. I will make nations of you and kings will come from you. It's kind of this progression of the promises getting bigger. Now the name Abram means exalted father in Hebrew. The name Abraham means father of a multitude. And you can see how that name is describing what's in this covenant. Not just one nation will come from Abram, but many nations. Kings are going to look back to Abram as their great ancestor. But that's not all. This covenant's a biggie. Look at verse 7. Abraham and his descendants will be God's own special people out of all of the nations of the earth. Just these guys. The God who made the universe says to him and to all the generations of his descendants after him, I'll be your God. You can say that the God of the universe is your God. And this is God's everlasting promise of relationship. Kind of like a marriage vow between God and the people of Abraham. And not, not for one lifetime, but forever. Now hold on to that word, everlasting, because you're going to read it a lot in the next few verses. And wait, there's more. Look at verse 8. The whole land of Canaan, where you now reside as a foreigner, I will give as an everlasting possession to you and your descendants after you, and I'll be their God. So the promise of the land comes back, and again the promise is given that, that flavour of, of greatness as an everlasting possession. Now, Imagine someone made a contract with you and then they got up and they gave you a piece of paper and they said, here you go, that's what I'll do. Now you're reading that and you're going, that's pretty good. That is a very good first page of a contract. If you're Abram, your very name has become greater and from now on you're going to be called Abraham and God says, i tell you what I'm going to do, I'm going to give you nations and kings and land and you're going to be the great ancestor of all of them. 
and they will have the right to be called the chosen people of the living God. That's a pretty good promise. That's a great first page. What's on the second page? Because this one's good. What a thing to be told to be, that you're going to be given this. But now let's look at the second page. Let's look at the second half of the contract. If that's what God says, this is what I'll do. What does Abram or Abraham have to do as a response? Look at verses 9 to 13. And God said to Abraham, as for you, you must keep my covenant. You and your descendants after you for the generations to come. This is my covenant with you and your descendants after you. The covenant you are to keep. You think he's making a point here? You better keep this, right? Every male among you shall be circumcised. You are to undergo circumcision. And it will be the sign of the covenant between me and you. For the generations to come, every male among you who is eight days old must be circumcised, including those born in your household or bought with money from a foreigner, those who are not your offspring. Whether born in your household or bought with your money, they must be circumcised. My covenant in your flesh is to be an everlasting covenant. Now, circumcision was not an uncommon thing in the ancient world. But here in his command to Abraham, God commands it as a mandatory right and attaches to it a profound significance. I'm going to be yours and you're going to mark yourselves out, males anyway, in a very, very, very personal way that you are mine and that you're in on this covenant. You will quite literally carry with you a constant reminder that you are set apart for me. But circumcision is more than that. See, what do you need to be constantly reminded of something? You get your phones out, you get iCal, you set it up and you go, just give me a ping every day, that's nice. Now, they didn't have that option back then, it might have been a handy one. You, 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 but you might say in the answer, well, why don't, why not just get a tattoo? Imagine you can put Yahweh or something like that on your arm. There's a permanent reminder. Can't you let us do a tat? Or maybe a particular style of haircut, some sort of ancient mullet, or or paint your toenails purple, and you'll know who God's people are because they were all the ones with purple toenails, Or, or always wear socks with sandals. That tends to be good with the religious people. Why circumcision? Why make them do that? Isn't it a bit random? No, 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 no. There is nothing random about it. You see, a covenant sign needs to be linked to the promise that the covenant's about. God's covenant with Abraham, what was that word that I told you to remember? Everlasting covenant. A tattoo dies with you. But circumcision reminds you that this covenant is profoundly generational because of where it is. The sign is engraved on a reproductive organ and that's actually an important critical part of it because this covenant is passed on to Abraham's children and their children's children and their children's children's children and their children's... You get the picture. So unlike other signs of covenants, like a pile of stones that might be a a, a sign of a covenant between two neighbours or a wedding ring, right? 
This sign is future-looking. It doesn't look at something you did in the past. It looks to the future. Now, the thing about contracts is that when you break them, there's consequences. For starters, the party that's been wronged is no longer under any obligation to fulfil their side of the contract if you don't fulfil yours. So take a mortgage contract, for instance. If you don't pay the loan for the house that you bought, what is the bank entitled to do? Take the house back. Ancient covenants are the same. They often contain clauses that spelled out what would happen if the person broke the covenant and that's what verse 14 is. Any uncircumcised male who has not been circumcised in the flesh will be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. If anyone doesn't get cut off, they will themselves be cut off. If you don't want to own up to being my people, then you have no right to be a part of the people that I am gathering. And you've got no right to receive the blessings that come with this covenant. You don't want it, you're you're out. Because this community is going to be under my blessing and you don't seem to want it. Now, normally a covenant would end at this point. You've had the promises each way and you've had the seal of the deal at the end that says, what happens if it's broken? But God hasn't finished In fact, he drops a bit of a bombshell. God moves from Abraham and starts talking about his wife Sarai in verse 15. God also said to Abraham, as for Sarai, your wife, you're no longer to call her Sarai. Her name will be Sarah. I will bless her and will surely give you a son by her. I will bless her so that she will be the mother of nations and kings of peoples will come from her. You see how this echoes what God promised to Abraham? He says, I'm going to do that through Sarah. Up until now, God's just promised that Abraham was going to have a child that would inherit the promises. Now, remember, Abraham has a son, Ishmael. But God tells him that those many nations that he'd be father of, the kings that he would be father of, would be calling Sarah mummy, not Hagar. Now, put yourself in Abraham's sandals for a minute. He was old before, but now he's so old he's about to get a telegram from the Queen. He had a son for 13 years by now. He's been roaming around going, mission accomplished. I've got my son. There's my heir. He's going to get all the promises. I don't need to worry about that anymore. And that's Ishmael. And now God tells me that Sarah is going to have a son? Sarah? And that he's the one that's going to receive all of these promises? Have you seen Sarah? She's... 90! Isn't it a bit late to be going through all of this childbearing thing? In fact, as we see in verse 17, Abraham is so gobsmacked about this that he laughs. Abraham fell face down. He laughed and said to himself, will a son be born to a man a hundred years old? Will Sarah bear a child at the age of 90? Abraham is incredulous. This is not him laughing with joy. Wow, how is this amazing, God? This is amazing. No, 
This is confusion at its best. See, for 13 years, he's assumed that this base had already been covered. He's invested his hopes and his future security in Ishmael. He's been grooming him for this for 13 years. And you can tell that he doesn't believe that God's really going to do this, or at least he's sceptical about it, because that it's possible because he pleads for the young man. Look at verse 18. And Abraham said to God, if only Ishmael might live under your blessing. I've already got a son. Can you please give it to him? Now, God's reply to this is gracious, but it's pretty firm. Verse 19. God says, yes, but your wife Sarah will bear you a son and you will call him Isaac and I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his descendants after him. There are those words again, everlasting covenant. But Sarah's son is the one that inherits this contract with God. Oh, and by the way, I want you to call him Isaac. Isaac means he laughed. It is exactly the word that is used in verse 17 when it says Abraham fell down and he laughed. He Isaaced. See, God does have a sense of humour, but there's also a bit of, of a rebuke here. Just as there is later in chapter 18 when Sarah does exactly the same thing and she goes, if I'm going to have a kid. And, and that name is going to be an everlasting reminder that what Abraham thought was laughably impossible, the Lord brought about. Think, just think about it when Isaac turns up. Think about what you use, how often you use a name, right? Hey, he laughed, pass me the salt. Hey, Sarah, isn't he laughed getting taller now? Hey, he laughed, could you tell that herdsman that I need him for a moment? It's not a name that was used as a name, it's a verb. He laughed and you've called your kid a verb. Every time Abraham, for the rest of his life, calls his son's name, it's a bit of a prod, a kind, a loving prod, but a prod from God reminding him that his beloved son, that his pride and joy was God's fulfilment of a promise that he couldn't believe. Even so, in the verses that follow, God does reassure Abraham, look, don't worry about Ishmael, I will look after him. He is a son beloved by Abraham and so, yes, he'll be blessed. He also will become a great nation. Notice that Abrahamic language there. But the covenant... The great promises are going to go Isaac's way and the way of Isaac's descendants and they are explicitly not going to go Ishmael's way. And within a year, Sarah is going to give birth to Isaac. So it's a big day, right? Humongous promises. You know, this is more than housing, exchanging a housing contract, right? This is huge. But this covenant establishing day isn't over yet. God has made his promises, he's mapped out what Abraham's obligations are and so now it's time for Abraham to fulfill, fulfill his side of the covenant and here's where Abraham gets it right. He laughed before but what does he do now? He immediately obeys and I can tell you that something though, a couple of hours later, he's not going to be laughing. 
Not many people in his whole... There would, yeah, there'd be a lot of moaning, I expect. Um, look at the emphasis at the beginning here, right? On that very day. And, and here's another thing to listen out for. Listen for that, the repetition of how many people are getting done here. On that very day, Abraham took his son Ishmael and all those born in his household or bought with his money, every male in his household and circumcised them as God told him. Abraham was 99 years old when he was circumcised. His son Ishmael was 13. Abraham and his son Ishmael were both circumcised on that very day. We've already been told that. He repeats it. It's making a point. And every male in Abraham's household, including those born in his household or bought from a foreigner, was circumcised with him. If you think there's about five or ten people here, no, no, no. There is a lot of people who just got circumcised. In chapter 14, 318 people who were part of Abraham's household go up and defeat the enemy armies. This is a big, big community of people. We have now, um, what we have now is a community of hundreds marked out as the new covenant people of Yahweh the Lord bound to him and he bound to them by solemn covenant. I think it's quite interesting, isn't it, that the very first covenant community of the people of God had one Jew in it, Abraham. He hasn't even had Isaac yet. And everyone else there is an Egyptian, is an Aramean, is a Canaanite, is a whoever became part of Abraham's gathering. It's a wonderful little picture right at the beginning of the covenant people of God that will be expressed at the very end of it in the church, in us, people of every tribe and language who are Abraham's descendants. So it was a painful day but it was worth the pain. Those promises were monumental and they were long-term, an everlasting covenant from the God of the universe to Abraham's descendants through Isaac. And the big sign of it was circumcision, the reminder that was passed on for generations that said, these people are mine. So now do you get why in the New Testament the Jews were so proud of circumcision of all things? It's actually not strange at all. It was a badge of profound honour. So then... What do we do about circumcision today as Christians? These Jewish people in the New Testament, they went about telling the non-Jewish Christians, that is the Gentile convert, converts to Christianity, that they should be circumcised as well. If they're going to be part of the people of God, well, that means you've got to get circumcised, right? That's the way it's been since Abraham's time. And didn't God say here that this was to be a sign for them and for the generations after them? And doesn't he say in the chapter we just looked at that if anyone doesn't do it, they are to be cut off from their people? So why don't we do it? Well, fellas, don't get the scalpel out just yet. And here's three reasons why. First, because circumcision was the sign of covenant obedience, it wasn't the reality. The way Abraham actually was to set himself apart according to God is back in verse 1. I am God Almighty, walk before me and be blameless. The reality of obeying the covenant was to walk God's way in faith with a life and a heart that were devoted to him. 
And that's what the Apostle Paul explained to the believers in Rome. He says, a person's not a Jew who's only one outwardly, nor is circumcision merely outward and physical. No, a person is a Jew who is one inwardly. And circumcision is circumcision of the heart, by the Spirit, not by the written code. Such a person's praise is not from other people, but from God. Now, the second reason why you shouldn't rush for the scalpel is that it was the sign of the old covenant. And we are now under the new covenant that God has established in Jesus. But the third and the greatest reason not to rush for the scalpel is simply because you don't need it. Circumcision has now been made obsolete. The old covenant has been overwhelmed by the glory of the new covenant. As Genesis has gone on, I hope you've seen already how the promises grow and kind of get bigger and get fuller in scope. Well, when Jesus turns up, they go, boom, they explode. In dying for our sins, he enabled all who repent and trust in him to be marked out as God's own people. You know, in Galatians chapter 3, verse 26, we're told, you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. In fact, Paul goes on to say in verses 28 and 29 that there is neither Jew or Gentile, neither slave nor free, there's no male or female, for you're all one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, then you're Abraham's seed and your heirs according to the promise. That's all you need? Do you belong to Christ? Then you're an heir of the promise. You see, Jesus Christ makes circumcision redundant. Have a look at this in Colossians 2. This explains it, I think, really helpfully. In him, you were also circumcised with a circumcision not performed by human hands. Your, listen, think about this, your whole self ruled by the flesh was put off. Not a little bit. Your whole self was put off when you were circumcised by Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through your faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. When you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins, cancelled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He's taken it away, nailed it to the cross. You don't need circumcision anymore. You have been set apart by and in Jesus. Jesus sets us apart as God's people, not with a physical sign, but by ridding us of our sin, by giving us the Holy Spirit to dwell within us, the seal guaranteeing our inheritance, as the New Testament puts it. So because God sets us apart inwardly and fully by His Holy Spirit, we don't need a physical sign anymore. That's exactly what we read in Philippians 3. For it is we who are the circumcision, we who serve God by His Spirit, who boast in Christ Jesus and who put no confidence in the flesh. All right, so if we don't grab the scalpel, great news, what do we do? 
you know what the first thing you do is you rejoice. Now, I'm not saying it to the guys, <laughs> all right? Rejoice that you don't have to be circumcised when you become a Christian. Rejoice that when you, you know, try and tell your friend about Jesus, and you say, oh, by the way, you know, so it's great, you become part of church and you get to eternal life, but there's this thing with scissors and you're not going to like that. No, you don't have to do that. That's, that's not why we rejoice. We rejoice because those promises... Those everlasting, eternal promises, those magnificent blessings come to us in Jesus. That we who were once far away, because we weren't Jews, have now been brought near by the blood of Jesus. That means you can rejoice in the everlasting promise of relationship with God for the rest of your life and for the rest of eternity. That is something to rejoice in. That's the glory of the new covenant. But what about us? What do we need to do? Well, it's what Abraham was called to do. Walk before me and be blameless. Like Abraham, our faith is to express itself in obedience. Let the greatest sign that you belong to Jesus, that you're marked out for him, be the way you live your life. Verse 19 of chapter 7 of Corinthians. Circumcision is nothing and uncircumcision is nothing. Keeping God's commands is what counts. Don't you love how plain that is? That's clear, isn't it? Um, Galatians 5. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision has any value. The only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. In Galatians 6. Neither circumcision nor uncircumcision means anything. I think you get the picture. <laughs> What counts is the new creation, that's living the new life that you have now in Jesus. Peace and mercy to all who follow this rule, and listen to this language, to the Israel of God. You are set apart by Christ, so be set apart for Christ. Walk before him faithfully and be blameless. I asked at the beginning, what should mark you out as a Christian? What should make you stand out from the people around you? That is what should mark you out. Walk before me and be blameless. That should, what, should be what marks you out when you're going down to the Bayview. Walk before me and be blameless. That's what should mark you out when you're posting stuff on social media. Walk before your Lord Jesus Christ and be blameless. That should be what marks you out when you're on the sporting field. That's what should mark you out at your school, in your social groups, at university or in your workplace. Nothing so easily hideable, I'm afraid, not I'm afraid, it's wonderful, as circumcision. But the clear and transparent testimony of a godly character that says to one another, even as it says it to the people who don't know Jesus around you, that you belong to him. And it's not a fiction, it's not a parade, it's not some sort of hypocritical act. You're walking before him and you're being blameless. You're a recipient of his great and precious promises. That's why I had us read from, from Colossians chapter 3. Did you, did you pick up all the language of putting off and putting on? And that big list of what you're to get rid of because it doesn't belong. They are, 
the sins and attitudes of the flesh that you put off because you're in Christ. You cut out the sin from your life and you encourage one another to cut out the sin from your life together. You certainly don't encourage each other to do the opposite. You cut out the stuff that makes you no different from the unbelieving world around you. And you clothe yourself, you wear for all to see the glorious character of Christ. As God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with things like compassion and kindness and humility and gentleness and patience. And while you're at it, bear with each other. Forgive one another if any of you has a grievance against someone. Forgive as the Lord has forgiven you. And then over all of these virtues, put on love that binds them together in perfect unity. Let me pray and ask God to help him to help us to do that. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your grace to us in Jesus. Lord, we thank you for setting us apart. Um, please, Father, help us to clothe ourselves with Christ. When we go out into the world, help us to be marked out as different. Help us to spur one another on to be like that. And Father, please, we ask that our non-Christian friends and family will see us as different, not as annoyingly different, but as wonderfully different, something that they want to know why. And please use our difference to win them for Christ too. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen. We're going to listen to a song here. If you're online, you get to sing it. Um, but if you're sitting here, why don't you just reflect? This is a song that actually reminds us, it's this rejoicing part it, of how good the blessing of God has been to us, that we might number it, reflect upon it and thank Him for it. So maybe as, as you're listening to this, reflect, spend some time in prayer.